Now let's dive into our sermon series. Uh, we are in a series called Credo, and this sermon series really came out of a desire for us to build some good boundary conditions for our faith, because we live in pretty confusing times. And if you're just looking at pop culture, if you're just diving into social media, God help you right now because there are so many moving pieces. Uh, It's so hard to know. What is it that we could really rely on? What is it that we could sink our teeth into? What is it that defines us as followers of Jesus? And as as a teaching team, we were praying and looking at it. And uh, for us, we we decided to use the Apostles' Creed uh, as a structure for our sermon series. Now, we're not doing this because we're Catholic, and we're not doing this because we need more religiosity in our life. No, creeds come in times in the church when clarity is needed, and right now, clarity is needed. And so we are using the Apostles' Creed as kind of a structure uh, for our sermon series, but we're trying to come around the main tenets of our faith. And as I was reflecting on the sermon series, this is what I wrote down this week. We live in a time where there is a war on truth, an aversion to facts or moral frameworks that challenge our ever-shifting cultural narratives. We live in a time that is increasingly intolerant of dialogue and conversation because dialogue and conversation can literally upend the world's morally and logically precarious ideologies. This is why truth is being buried and deception, even when it's open and obvious to all of us, is being celebrated. Our contemporary Western world is dominated by the thoughts of Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. And unfortunately, many of us uh, find these thoughts leaching into our foundations, even those of us in the church. Many of us are unaware of the slow, acidic erosion of our Jesus-centered worldview. And without theological boundaries uh, inside of healthy community, we are in serious danger right now. We need to strengthen one another in the reasonableness of our of the main tenets of our faith so that we can remain healthy, powerful, and Jesus-centered in this community that we call Living Streams. We need that. This is what the sermon series is about, and this is why we're creating these boundary conditions. We're looking at it, and I know in the world, they're like, don't make rules on me, man. I don't want any rules, and we're, we're going, hey, I hear that, but in, in Living Streams, in this church, we need to know what are the boundary conditions? What are the things that keep us healthy in our walk with Jesus? And theology does matter. So today we are diving into the theology of Jesus, (laughs) of which you go, of course, we're preaching about Jesus on Sunday morning. I know, shocker. Um, We we really, but but honestly, I mean, as I was diving into it, there are so many different facets to Jesus, and the title of my sermon today is, Who is Jesus? This is a question that we all need to answer. I was doing a little bit of research this week, and I found that 2.6 billion people consider themselves a follower of Jesus in some way or fashion around the world. That's a lot of people. This year, that number is up by 44.5 million people. This year, 44.5 million more people started following Jesus. That is something to be celebrated. That's amazing. Yes. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, there's a lot of news to be bummed out about right now, but we, like, we see these little nuggets. We got to grab onto them for dear life. Uh, so 44 and a half million people. When you look at the life of Jesus, what's so amazing is the life of Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah. The most pertinent of them being uh, Psalm 22. If you haven't read that, read that. It is an amazing prophecy about the death and life of Jesus. And it is one of those things that as you 
you dive into it, the more and more you realize God had a plan and his name was Jesus. And he gave us a lot of forewarning. It's beautiful. 300 Old Testament prophecies. Jesus' teachings, if we were to be honest and we look at the culture around us, it is nearly impossible for us to separate the world that we live in with the teachings of Jesus. And a lot of times we just take them for granted. Jesus cared for the poor. This is not natural for humans, right? Like, this is not a natural tendency for us. We're, we're doing everything we can to not be poor. And Jesus is going, you need to care for the poor, the marginalized, the people that you, you look down on or you might just walk by uh, on the street. You need to love them. This is not normal. This is contrary to human nature. But this is what Jesus taught. Jesus taught about honoring humility, this is not something, again, that the world honors. When they, when, when they look at leadership in the world, leaders are defined by how powerful they are. Everything that we hear right now is this idea of power struggles between classes or people. This is something very intrinsic in our culture. It's very intrinsic in culture in general throughout history. And Jesus pushed back on that. And he said, if you want to be a good leader, if you want to have power in the kingdom, then you give it all away. Then you need to be the chief uh, servant in the room. And Jesus even said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve others. This is an upside down version of a kingdom. This is not normal. And yet this is a big part of our culture. So whenever you see somebody celebrating humility, that is contrary to human nature. And that is the direct result of Jesus's teaching. He taught about a bunch of other things too, protecting children, he talk, talked about um, uh, caring for the orphan and the widow. And these are very important teachings that have seeped themselves into our culture in a way that we really can't imagine it without him. And even the most ardent atheists would have to admit these things are the result of the teachings of Jesus. So great. Jesus taught a lot of really good things. That's, that's great. But didn't he do more than that? <laughs> didn't he do more than that? I was doing some research uh, this week, and um, Lifeway did this. They've been actually doing this ongoing uh, polling data with, uh, with Americans from 2014 till now, and they asked the same sort of questions that are theologically based uh, for Americans. And uh, their most recent survey came out, and it said that 52% of Americans say that they believe Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. The shocker is that 30% of evangelical Christians agreed, which is crazy. And I, I looked into it. I was like, that can't be. How do they define an evangelical Christian? It must have been very narrow. And it was like, you believe that God created the world, that Jesus came and died for our sins and was resurrected, and then you believe you should tell other people about Jesus. That was the prerequisite for an evangelical Christian. And I was going, 30% of evangelical Christians believe that Jesus taught really great things, but he was not God. Maybe even going a step deeper, 65% of evangelicals agree with the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, before we start harping on evangelical Christians, I think we need to look at ourselves a little bit. And especially those of us who teach in a church, I read that and I felt a ton of conviction and I was going, we need to teach about this. <laughs> this has to be a part of what we do because theology does matter. What we believe about Jesus does matter. 
Now, there's a couple of false teachings I want to talk about today, and I just want to plug again our Wednesday nights. We are doing a deep dive into uh, all of these things, and especially when you read the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus went to hell, and you go, what does that mean? <laughs> he went to hell before he was raised again. Uh, we are going to talk about that on Wednesday. So if that's a burning question for you, we will address it on Wednesday, uh, as well as a bunch of other things. And you can email us at any point, ask at livingstreams.org. We're doing our best to answer all of those questions. Um, but that is, uh, that, that, that is a, an outlet for you guys to hear about these things. But, uh, but there are a couple of false teachings I want to talk about today that, that really are false teachings in the church. Uh, number one, um, uh, Arianism. Not to be confused with Nazi Germany, Arianism. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, Arius was a priest in uh, the fourth century. And as he was studying God, as he was studying the Bible, he started getting to this point where he realized he could not wrap his head around the Trinity. And he said, you know what? I think Jesus was a created being. I think that, you know, God the Father was God in the, in the beginning and that Jesus was actually a created being. And this spurred on a lot of conversation that culminated into about 100 years later, uh, there was a council, the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century, uh, where they debated this, and they finally found themselves on the common ground where they said this, Jesus' nature is both human and divine, and they are without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. This is really important, and we're going to get to this. The, the theology of the Trinity is very important. This is not just for theological nerds, which maybe some of us are three, dive into this a little too deeply, but I will say it is very important in the way that we understand God, which we're going to get to in just a minute. The other false teaching would be uh, docetism, uh, which is the belief that Jesus was fully God, but he was not man, and that he was actually just a hologram that walked around on earth, this is a real thing. A hologram that walked around on earth and he didn't actually get crucified. We just saw him get crucified, but he was not made of the physical substance like us. And this is a false teaching. Jesus taught that he had flesh and blood. And it's pretty clear to see that when you look at scripture. So what we need to know about Jesus is he was fully God and he was fully man. This is Orthodox Christian belief that has been around for a very long time, and it is extremely biblically based. I highlighted four verses for us to look at today that highlight the, uh, the, the fully God nature of Jesus and the fully man nature of Jesus. The first one with the, f- the fully God nature of Jesus is Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. And Hebrews 1, it says that Jesus was the exact imprint of God. He was the exact nature of God. He was the exact substance of God. Jesus was fully God. Hebrews uh, 1 teaches that very clearly. John chapter 1, which we're going to deep dive into in just a minute. John chapter 1 and Genesis 1.26. Jesus was there in the beginning. So John chapter 1 in the beginning was a word, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So Jesus was there in the beginning. And Genesis 1.26 is interesting because... God at some point shifts from the singular to the plural, and he says, let us make God in our own image. This, I think, in a New Testament paradigm is pretty clear intimation to the Trinity, though there is some debate about it. We're going to talk about it again on Wednesday. Have I mentioned that we're doing this on Wednesday? Yeah, we're going to deep dive that on Wednesday. Um, Jesus's humanity was displayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this very, very pivotal moment before Jesus goes to the cross, 
He prays to the Father, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? This is the humanness of Jesus on display. He's going, I, really, I know what I have to do and I really don't want to do it. And yet he comes full circle and he says, not my will, but yours be done. This is the human nature of Jesus on display. John 20, 27, Thomas, put your finger on my wounds. This is Jesus going, I'm physically here. I'm not a hologram. Like, this is pretty clearly like you, you could touch it. You could feel Jesus. And especially after the resurrection, he came back in bodily form. He ate food. People touched him. They interacted with him. He was here physically on earth. And he left physically as well. So Jesus was fully God and fully man. Let's go to, let's go to John chapter 1. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter one. And I love, I love the way that John writes because John is so poetic. The way that he writes is just, let's look at the life of Jesus. But before we do, John's like, let's take a step back and look at the big picture. And he writes in this just beautiful overarching sort of language. And John chapter one, he says this. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Which things? All things. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life uh, was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I love, I love this passage. John, before he dives in and starts telling us the stories about Jesus, he's going, just so you know, Jesus was there at the very beginning. At the very beginning. I was looking at Genesis chapter one this week, uh, and I feel like as a teaching team, we found ourselves in Genesis chapter one like every single week. Um, Genesis chapter one, I was diving into it a little bit and I saw, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And you see God, the father, you see the Holy Spirit. And I started going, where's Jesus in this? Where's the Trinity represented in Genesis? And John so poetically answers that for us. Jesus was there in the words that God used to create everything. He was there. He was, the, he was the word of God. And the word of God made manifest and made flesh through Jesus Christ when he came here is miraculous and beautiful and wonderful because that same word was also there all the way back in Genesis chapter one. Jesus was there. And he wasn't created. He was there from the beginning and he was there before the beginning. And this is incredibly important for us to understand. I've been reading a book lately, um, Delighting in the Trinity. Um, and I know we plug like 8 billion books up here. <laughs> I'm so sorry. If you're like trying to keep, keep up with us, I'm sorry. Uh, but this, I will say, this is like one of my top five books. If you are interested in the theology of the Trinity, I would highly recommend this book. Tim Mackey rep, re, uh, recommended. And if you know who that guy is, then you know, okay, that's pretty reputable. <laughs> um, this book is amazing. And he says in here, he talks about the Trinity and he goes, you know, the Trinity is not just, a lot of times we undersell it. We go, oh, it's just so mysterious. Yes, it's mysterious. Yes, the Trinity is nearly impossible for our human minds to wrap around, but the fruit of the Trinity is vitally important and it points to its own trueness. It points to the fact that it is true. The Trinity itself is the, the very foundation for everything that we understand about God. 
And I'm going to prove that in just a minute. Well, I'll do my best to prove it in just a minute. But this is what he said at the end of chapter one. I love this. He said, John Calvin once wrote that if we try to think about God without thinking about the Father, Son, and Spirit, then only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. He was quite right, for there is a vast world of difference between the triune God revealed by Jesus and all other gods. This God simply will not fit into the mold of any other, for the Trinity is not something, some inessential add-on to God or some optional software that can be plugged into him. At bottom, this God is different. For at bottom, he is not creator, ruler, or even God in some abstract sense. He is father, loving and giving life to his son and the fellowship of the spirit. A God who is in himself love, who before all things could never be anything but love. Having such a God happily changes everything. What does that mean? He started talking about some of the things that we, we say about God, some of the things that we go, oh, well, God is love and God is a father, God's father. And he said, outside of the Trinity, those phrases do not hold water. Let me explain. So if God is love, let's say, God is love and he loves people, all of that. But if he, there was not Trinity and love before he created mankind, then how could he possibly understand love if he's just by himself? He can't. And beyond that, how could we say that loving him and him loving us is the prerequisite for him to be a God of love? God does not require us to be a God of love. He was a God of love before we arrived. Does that make sense? This is really important to understand. God is love before we even arrived. He knew and understood fellowship before we even were created. And this is vitally important in understanding God as a God of love. Let's, let's take the word father again. If, G, if, if God the father was dependent on us, his creation, to be identified as father, then God is reliant on us to have the identity of father. But that is not true. That is not the God that I know. The God that I know is self-sufficient. So God is father before we were even created because Jesus was there before we were even created. Does that make sense? So if he's by himself, like, like every other, uh, you look at Islam or anything else, these sort of lone wolf gods, how could they possibly understand love if they weren't triune in nature? How could they possibly be father or someone who loves deeply if they didn't have a triune nature? The Trinity is not an incidental sort of thing. It is vital in the belief system of the, of the follower of Jesus. It is vital for us to understand. It's incredibly important. There's a lot of um, things when we, you look at the Trinity, honestly, it helps us to identify things that are false teachers. So, so Islam, even Judaism, um, these sort of belief systems, when they are absent the Trinity, we can understand that that's something that we need to stay away from as a follower of Jesus. Years ago, um, I was really heavily into like apologetics and learning a lot about theology. And, and this all, all this stuff matters, right? Theology does matter. And it's, it's really important. 
and I was learning a lot about theology, and I was learning about maybe the difference in theology between um, Jehovah's Witnesses and us, or Mormonism, and, and kind of main, mainline uh, Christianity. And there was a guy that I had, uh, that I had listened to, and he was a, a Jehovah's Witness, and he said, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the Trinity. They believe that Jesus was a great teacher and all of that, but they do not believe that he was God. And he said, you know, there's one verse in, uh, in the Bible that really fights against that. And it's in Revelation chapter one. And it's when God is standing before John. And he says, I'm the alpha, the omega, I'm the beginning and the end. And then he keeps going and he says, I was dead and behold, now I'm alive. And, and I learned that. I was like, wow, that's awesome. Like when was, and he said, the question to ask is when was Jehovah ever dead? Never. The Old Testament God was never, never dead. This is, this is Jesus that's talking, the Alpha and the, uh, and the Omega. And I had learned that, and I was like, okay, great. And I'm kind of nerdy, and I'm like, I like arguments. I'm kind of argumentative, too, but by nature. Um, and I, one time I was on vacation in, uh, in Seattle years and years ago, and, and uh, I was sitting there having my quiet time, and a group of Jehovah's Witnesses came up to me, and they were talking to me, and we were talking kind of back and forth, and and I remembered this thing and I was going, oh, you know, can I see your Bible? You know, to add to the effect of it, like, let me see your Bible. Let me point out a verse. And uh, there was an older, uh, older man and a uh, younger, younger man that was there. And, and I, I pointed out that verse and I said, hey, hey, look at this. What do you think of that? You know, and I'll never forget. They kind of looked at each other and they looked at the Bible and they looked at each other and they looked at the Bible. And at some point, the, the older Jehovah's Witness said, uh, we, I think we need to go, you know? And I said, oh, well, email me, you know, let me know if you want to talk anymore, you know? And they, they walked off and I felt pretty proud of myself. I was like, I did it, <laughs> you know, like, got him, got him, got the theology, you know, like you don't have the right theology, you know? And, um, and was it true? Yeah, it was true. And, and is it a, a point of deception? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but right thinking should move us to right acting, Right? And I realized I didn't point them to Jesus. I just wanted to be right about theology. And there's a point where theology runs out. There's a point where you're left with your relationship with Jesus. And so we're talking about, okay, what does the world say about Jesus? What does the Bible say about Jesus? What's so important for us is what does Jesus say about Jesus? What does he say about himself? And I'm going to do a little tour through the book of John for us. But in John chapter 8, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Jesus made it pretty clear. He equated himself with God. In the book of John, chapter 5, John says, he was put forward to crucifixion uh, because he taught that he, he was, or because he was calling God Father and making himself equal to God. So in case we had any question, John clears that up pretty clearly. 
So Jesus didn't just have good teaching. He pointed us to himself. And we're left with a big decision. And I love the way that uh, the story in Luke chapter 9 sums it up. And Jesus is sitting with the disciples and he says, who does the world say that I am? And they answer, you know, and he says, who do the religious leaders say that I am? And, And they answer. But he ends with the most important question of all. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus hasn't stopped asking that question. Right theology is good. Right theology keeps boundary conditions. It's all great. But what it comes down to is who do you say that Jesus is? Is he savior to you? Have you taken on his righteousness? Then stop trying to earn it yourself. If you believe that Jesus is powerful, the alpha and the omega, then you need to stop worrying. You need to go, okay, Lord, I trust you. Do I believe that that's who you are? Do I believe what you said about yourself, that you're a good shepherd? You want to take care of us. You are a good shepherd. He's not leaving you out in the cold. He's not forgetting about you. He cares very deeply for you. Who do you say that Jesus is? We're going to take communion in uh, just a second. But before we do, I want you to take a minute and I want you to ask that question of the Lord. And if Jesus brings something to mind, then write it down. Say, okay, all right, I'm going to have to deal with that. But the main question is, is what do you believe about Jesus and how is it affecting how you're living? So let's take a minute, just you and the Lord, spend some time in